This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Coming up, we've got all the news and views from Manchester City's week. Get involved with the debate by tweeting at Blue Moon Podcast and check out exclusive interviews on bluemoonpodcast.com. It's your club and this is your show. Nothing's ever simple, is it? We can't use this week's Blue Moon podcast to bemoan City's finishing because they've put five past Newcastle on Wednesday evening. But clearly at Southampton, they could have played all night and never equalised. So what is up? Why are City so potent in front of goal one day, but so toothless another? That's what we're going to try and work out today. Also in this week's show, and you can tell we're getting towards the end of the season here, we're going to be looking at City's managers and their dress sense on the touchline. Should the boss have to wear a suit? And can anyone challenge Roberto Mancini for the crown of the best turned out man at the Etihad. We'll also look ahead to the games with Brighton and Bournemouth, plus Rob Wilson will take us back to City's Centurion season in the latest in his flashback series, and we've got your questions in Ask the Panel too. I'm David Mooney. This week, I'm joined by City fan Kieran Murray. Hello, David. And the Daily Mail's Jack Gorn. All right. How are we both doing? Jack, it's the first time you've been on since uh, since lockdown started, so, uh, so how are you coping? Yeah, well, you've are not you, asked, have you? Are you, are you well? I've sat here waiting, but you've <laughs> I, never asked. I, I put the message in the WhatsApp group, you've never replied. Yeah, well, there's a, the, I know there's a hierarchy in the WhatsApp group. <laughs> I'm not going to barge in and say, oh, I want to do stuff. I'm fine, thank you. Very, Yeah, very well. How are you? I'm very well, thank you very much. And Kieran, uh, me and you have both had a haircut this week, so uh, we're both happy. Yeah, Catwin's <laughs> gone, so I'm uh, fired up and ready to podcast. Excellent. Well, uh, let's crack right on and uh, talk City because, uh, as I said in the in the intro there, Jack, um, goals have not been a problem for City, and yet at the same time, goals have been a problem for City. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't think that's. I don't think that is exclusive to this season. Uh, I think that was a problem last year as well. Even though, the, yeah, it's weird, isn't it? They just score heaps and heaps. Um, first club to ever have five players score more than 10 goals in a season. Um, they can hit six, seven, eight past teams, but then struggle in one-off games. Uh, I don't know. Is it is it, the mo- is it a lack of movement when from the attackers when things aren't going their way? Is it the fact that teams have turned around and said, if we defend really narrow and we're attentive to what's going on, we back ourselves to deal with balls coming into the box? Has the crossing been good enough from wide areas? I don't know. And City, I guess, don't really have kind of a, you know, that box-to-box midfielder who will arrive late into the area and and knit you a goal. Uh, Probably Gundogan is probably the closest, I would say, that is, or the nearest to that, that would would arrive late. Um, He certainly splits fans as well. Yeah, I mean, I'd kind of... it's surprising I don't see you don't see him do it more often really because in in training when we get when we get to see them train a little bit which is not very often and normally in preseason um, when they do those drills where they get the ball out wide and then a midfielder's coming into box Gundogan's always like drilled to do that um, and seems to seems to practice it quite a lot but then we don't really see it that much in in games um, but yeah it's just they've, they just don't feel they've got that man who will run beyond the striker from the middle of midfield. They've got obviously got it from wide areas. Uh, but yeah, it's just, I don't know, it's it's strange. And the manager was, has been asked about it twice in the last week and he's not got an answer either. I wonder whether we might we might get more answers once the season's finished. Uh, but he's just like, I, I just don't know. 
Yeah, it's it's frustrating more than anything, Kieran, because like just watching that Southampton game, there was a point like just after half time, you got to the point where you thought they're just never going to score today. Yeah, um, it, it really just did feel like that. Southampton seemed to have two banks of four set up in the box. It was just absolutely legs everywhere. And when City are so intricate and sort of try and pass it or walk it in, as they've sometimes been um, been accused of doing, um, it, it just wasn't happening. I like that stat that uh, when Southampton got beat 9-0 by Leicester, City had actually more shots <laughs> on Sunday <laughs> than Leicester did in the 9-0 win. So that sort of tells you everything you need to know about what happened. I was going to say though, but then the, along come Newcastle and City can't help themselves but score five. Like, why? Why is there such a massive difference? Is it simply that Southampton defended a lot better than Newcastle? If you don't defend properly against City, then you lose the game, don't you? And I thought Southampton were great defensively, and Newcastle kind of turned up without any sort of ambition, um, and didn't have any ambition in the cup either, did they? Uh, the, and they're relying on on the back five to to head everything away and. And block everything, and they didn't. I think when if City get an early goal, the game's nine times out of ten, the game's done, isn't it? And when they don't get an early goal, I think they do occasionally tend to force it. And you see more. Certainly, this was the case on Sunday that you see more crosses coming into the box. And you know, Sunday they were crossing a ball into Gabriel Jesus, who's. I mean, they're not the biggest team anyway, but Jesus really isn't isn't a tall guy up against. Six foot three defenders, um, and we've seen that quite a lot this season, where there's been a hell of a lot of balls put into the box from wide areas. Not hope, hopeful, the wrong word, isn't it? But yeah, you, but I, I always feel when City start crossing it, that's the point where you're thinking, "Oh, hang on," you know. Yeah, and I, I just don't think I don't think the quality of delivery has been there this year. Um, Mendy is the best crosser of the ball from those sort of areas, uh, and obviously he's been kind of. In and out again, um, injury wise. If they can get him back back to his best in the final third, then it becomes a different. They become a different proposition down that down that side. Um, but I, I kind of get the feeling that he's still feeling his way back in, and is a little bit tentative in an attacking sense. He's trying to um, he's trying to sort himself out defensively, and then he'll hopefully get back to where he was going forward. Kieran, when when you see, I mean, I I, I almost hit the point on Sunday where I, I I almost did that sarcastic tweet, you know, where you say uh, I think City should try crossing it a bit, and then deleted it and thought it's just not worth the hassle. Um, but you, you get to that point, don't you, where you, you you can kind of see how the game is going and how it's gonna go. And like I said in the introduction, City could have played all night and never scored. I was just going to say that. Yeah, it happens very often. That actually doesn't it. Where you see the crosses coming in, you see Gundogan likes a kind of lofted ball into the box to no one at times. Um, and it's just when they're when they're out of ideas, sometimes you, you think, I, I don't know whether this is just me, but you know this sort of infamous kind of Pep Guardiola dogmatic, we play this way. And if you've read any of the books or watched the documentaries or even people like Henri speaking, um, there's, there's these sort of anecdotes about... Um, you know, people going against the instructions and then getting dropped the next game or or uh, or substituted straight away, and it sometimes feels as though they don't want to try anything or take anything on. And um, it's that it's that old adage, isn't it? The uh, trying the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. I mean, it didn't matter what we were trying on Sunday; it just wasn't going in. Um, so sometimes you wonder whether I think back to Vincent Company against Leicester last year, where he just was like. 
fuck this, you know, at, <laughs> at a massive shot at it. Uh, you you kind of would somebody not just try something a little bit different? It's it's a. Uh, um, <sighs> Sometimes I think, and I don't. I obviously don't want to criticize Pep Guardiola because of what he's brought and what he does, and you know, and his uh, historically how brilliant he's been across different clubs. But on the pitch, when the back's against the wall, and we try these methods over and over again, uh, and Southampton were just unbelievably good defensively. That so many of their um, so many of their defenders had you know eight, nine, ten out of ten uh, performances, and it was just like. N- nothing we were going to do that we were trying was working so you know would it not have been worth maybe trying something else or just just ending the game early and coming home saying yeah just have the points just finish it there you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> um i'll have a listen to this this is uh duncan alexander from opta uh, i spoke to him just before we started and, and asked him to explain the problems that city have had by uh, looking at their data for expected goals and expected goals against city are pretty much on par really for expected goals so their xg is 82 and they've scored 86 so you know slightly over but but not massively um, and that's where the big difference with Liverpool going forwards is. Liverpool's XG is only 63.5, um, but they've scored 75 goals. So that does suggest, you know, Liverpool digging out goals when they probably weren't expected to. You think of wins like the one they got away at Norwich um, shortly before the lockdown where, you know, they hadn't played brilliantly, but, you know, Mane came up with something towards the end. They're kind of on par again. Um, defensively City which isn't great for a team challenging for the title you know they've got expected goals against of 34.7 and have let in 34 goals you'd expect with you know the investment big clubs can make in their defence and you know City obviously spent big on defenders over the last few years and having a really good goalie that that should you know nudge you away from that kind of par and again if we compare with Liverpool they've actually got pretty much the same XG conceded as City they were on 34.5 um, but they've actually only let in 26 goals and that's like a massive difference and that's really obviously basically got them again into some good positions and we've seen Alisson, yeah, he's had a couple of spells out injured but he's been you know, really good this season and possibly you know, in a, in a way that Edison maybe hasn't. You can think of Edison, you know, kind of a few mistakes creeping into his game and, you know, they're not massive but over the course of the season these things really do matter, you know, and I guess City have had wins like the 8-0 against Watford, even the 5-0 against Newcastle this week, all very kind of nice statistically and, you know, rack up the goals, but you still only get three points for them. You know, they've lost nine league games this season um, and they may even lose, you know, another one or two before the season is ended. You get the, the inconsistency that has really kind of hampered them, um, you know, Liverpool, have lost that many games in sort of three seasons. You know, Pep only lost nine league games in total in his uh, time at Bayern. So it really has been one of those seasons. But I don't think it's necessarily like a crisis because it is a very unusual... You know, you look at the numbers City have put up and in many other seasons they would have had, you know, 10, 15 more points. And similarly, Liverpool, if they replayed this season, they probably would have 10 points fewer. So we could be looking at a a quite tight title race going into the the last few weeks. But um, so I don't think it it really says anything about next season. But, it, you know, it's definitely kind of a a blip of a campaign. Please support the show by becoming a backer. Patreon.com forward slash blue moon podcast jack when when you hear those numbers like that it's kind of it kind of backs up how we've seen city all season it's not a surprise is it you know that it's those big results that that really have skewed how city have have scored more goals than uh what and yet goals are still a problem 
Yeah. Well, the season was summed up by the weekend, wasn't it? City should hammer Southampton, don't end up losing. Liverpool don't look like scoring against Villa, end up winning 2-0. And that's that's the swing, and that's that's basically the season in in a nutshell. Um, it's, I was saying before about the, the players scoring over ten goals. There's no one who's like shot ahead and got twenty, twenty five, which I think's a big thing. It's great. It's it just goes to show how brilliant they are going forward that they've got these players that have all got ten, but they need someone who gets twenty, twenty five, because that's Someone who smells a goal and is scoring every week is the difference in these like in these games where they're struggling. Yeah, it's those I mean, one or two goals every two or three <laughs> games, isn't it? Yeah, I mean Aguero's got sixteen. I think if he gets, I'm not obviously not blaming Aguero at all. He's been he's been really good again. But if he gets twenty five, that I w- I'd say that adds another nine ten points onto what they've got. And it's the drop off as well after. So we've got Aguero, Sterling, De Bruyne, Jesus, and Mares. They've made up 62 of our goals this season. But then the drop-off, David Silva's got five. Bernardo Silva's only got five. And I, I believe he got a hat-trick against Watford, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Foden, four. Rodri, three. Gundogan, two. Otamendi, two. Walker, one. You're asking an awful lot of... like That stat was really impressive. And we've broken a record there last night with Mares getting uh, 10. So we've now got those five who've scored above 10 in Premier League season. But... The drop-off after that to David Silva with five and Bernardo was only five. Nobody seems to be coming in. I think you've touched upon it, Jack, already. Like Nobody seems to be coming in box-to-box. Box. Nobody seems to be coming in from, from wide too much, necessarily. Um, last season, Bernardo got seven, Gundogan six, Silva six, and then a load of different players on threes, twos, and ones. And we just don't seem to have had that this season. Kieran, I want to ask you as well, because I, I had a look at, at the expected goals for all of City's games and all of Liverpool's games. And okay, it's, you are it's, that kind of guy. Yeah, I am that kind of guy. <laughs> um, it, it's not a perfect measure, but it's, you know, it, 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 is, it is a decent measure of the quality of chances. Um, if the games had gone by the expected goals, City would be sitting on 80, 87 points right now, five off the top of the league and 18 points higher than what they've got already. Um so it, it kind of speaks to the fact that they're letting in too many too many chances where the opposition shouldn't score from. So is it errors? Is it great goals? One of those two. And they're not scoring when they, they've got guilt-edged chances. And that's a recipe for disaster. That's absolutely it, yeah. We've got beaten by one goal five times this season and two goals four times. Um, but I think back to the Spurs game just before uh, before lockdown kicked in. Uh, the one where we were dominating and just couldn't find... I think, did we miss a penalty? Missed a penalty, uh, yeah. And, and then Zinchenko got sent off and we just capitulated. Nothing really... You know, it was it was never going to be our day after that. Um, and Duncan uh, picked up on, on Ederson's mistakes creeping in as well. You know, we like... There, there are a series of kind of freak little moments and incidents and little blips that are just mean and it is such a freak of a season. Um, and Liverpool have just been a monster too. So, well, well, I'd say on on the flip side, if Liverpool's games had gone to their XG, they'd have nineteen points fewer. So, if if those two had had their games go to XG, it would have City would be fourteen points ahead of them. And yet, you look at the way the two teams have played, Jack. There's no question that Liverpool deserve the title and City don't. Um, 
yeah, I mean, Liverpool deserve the title because they've won the tight games and, and City have lost the tight games. That's the, that's the reason. I don't. Mm-hmm. Liverpool have have been very similar to last season, and the difference has been that City in those in games you would expect them to win haven't won, and that has been the difference. I don't think Liverpool have been any better than they were last year because they were they were excellent last year as well. Um, this is a for me. This is a this is a city of of struggled rather than a Liverpool of of excel pulled away from them, yeah. And that's to take nothing away from Liverpool, who've been excellent. But it's it's just I think I don't know. It's not much of an answer. This is it, but I think it's just one of those things. I don't know. It's hard to it's hard to explain and put your finger on why you know why they've missed the chances that they have, uh, and the difference is the difference has been that. Yeah, they missed those chances last year and the year before, but there was always another one that they'd stick in and people would forget about the misses. Yeah. Um, uh, Kieran, I want to ask you about Gabriel Jesus because he he got his goal that he looked so desperate for against Newcastle. It was a it was a really nice finish, a simple finish, but a really nice one, I thought. Um, how much did how much does he need that? And will that is it going to improve his fortunes in front of goal, do you think? Yeah, I think that was probably a harder finish than he got credit for, really. I love that kind of how he let it come across his body and then sort of turned out his right foot to stick it in the corner. The Mares one then came from a very similar position, but he he let it hit his left foot. It was really actually nice to see the two different approaches to a very similar chance. But um, yeah, no, Jesus was looking desperate. He he is such a great little player, but he's definitely a confidence player. Um, he's uh, you can sort of really easily read his facial expressions. He never really looks happy when he's not scoring. And um, he's a man you'd want to play poker against. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Those cheekbones uh, <laughs> give away a lot, don't they? There's no poker face there. Um, but yeah, uh, it will. Yeah, it'll massively help his help his confidence. I don't. It's not easy for anybody to have a a, a goal drought, um, and especially when you're sort of you're. I don't like calling him a rival striker, but you know Aguero's keeping him out of the team clearly, and Aguero is one of the best strikers we've ever seen. So you know, being up against him and then having your chance with Aguero out injured and then not, still not being able to take it and still not being able to find the back of the net, um, it seemed to be playing on him a little bit. And uh, yeah, so it was great to see him score the other night. I don't think it actually. <laughs> the only my only worry was I, I don't think he he really kicked on from it. You know, I don't think he looked likely to score again in the Newcastle game, particularly. Jack, is he is he good enough to be? Aguero's. I don't know. I don't know if, it, if it's Aguero's replacement or Aguero's understudy for the time being. What? What do you reckon? Uh, he's good enough to be his understudy. He's at the moment. I don't think he's quite there to be his replacement. Um, I think he might be better out on the left wing, personally, because uh, he's a very willing runner. Um, his movement seems to be quite good out out on the left hand side. I just. I, just wonder, like for the rest of the season, whether it's worth giving Sterling a go through the middle and playing Jesus that wide, um, and playing a bit more of a kind of more of a false nine than they have than they have done um, in recent weeks. Because they're gonna. I mean, all this depends on how fit Aguero is when the Champions League starts again. Now, but he's not going to be match fit, is he? Uh, and they need. They're going to need goals in big moments. And who would you? 
who would you rather in front of goal at the moment? Would you rather Sterling or or Jesus? I think De Bruyne, to be honest. <laughs> well, well, I actually have De Bruyne in goal, centre half, <laughs> yeah. uh, on the touchline as well. Um, he's just like, yeah, he's aston- he's been astonishing all year, and he's going to be has to be player of the year. De I, I really feel like De Bruyne needs to to break that record soon because he's been the man possessed, Kieran. <laughs> Yeah, though I, I thought he changed the game against Southampton for the worse though when he came on. He did, um, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think he found a blue shirt uh, with a pass, but no, I, it's one of them, isn't it? When I, he's such a leader and he's such a you know he's willing to take games by the scruff of the neck, and he realised that he'd been put on the pitch because uh, you know it was it was backs against the wall stuff. Uh, I think he tried to do too much, and. Um, yeah, none of it really came off. Um, but no, he is a man possessed, and you you would like to you would like to put your house on him uh, beating this record for uh, assists. It's Henri's twenty, isn't it? Yeah, and I I think De Bruyne thinks he's already done it because yeah, um, yeah he's been arguing about yeah, it. Yeah, he's been arguing over a couple, and uh, and and so I, th- <laughs> I I think he thinks he deserves to be there. So I think he's desperate to get over that line. Um, yeah. Jack, are there any are there any worries about and on a more serious note, are there any worries about losing him? Uh, you know, if the cast verdict on Monday doesn't go in City's favour, you know what? I actually don't think so. Um, really? I uh, yeah, I, this is a sort of clip that'll get play, replayed. Yeah, and replayed don't don't worry. If it, if it happens, I'll bury it. You're fine. I know. I, know. <laughs> um, I think the money. So he's got three years left on his contract. The money that City would demand would be just astronomical, particularly in in kind of COVID times and, you know, how, how much does anyone have to spend on players? We don't really know at the moment and that will only become clear in a couple of months. Does anyone have the finance required to, to sign a 29-year-old with no resale value um, on what would be a whopping contract and he would get a five-year contract everywhere? Can any of the European clubs lay that amount of money down on the table for someone at the mo- at this moment in time? I don't know, and that's always been it's always been the feeling surrounding Sterling as well. Does ever does anyone have the money for for it? I mean, Madrid and Barcelona are the, are the two that always get mentioned, um, and I've kind of written about Barcelona and Madrid. Like, but at the moment, they don't have the money. Bayern Munich probably don't have the money. Um, the only one you would say that probably does is PSG, but then for sporting reasons, do any of those sort of players want to go to PSG and play in, in that in that league? I don't, I don't know. So I, I personally can't see De Bruyne leaving. I or Sterling, actually, for that matter. I, I think both of them will get significantly improved contracts to stay. Yeah. I think, I mean, I must say as well, the other side of it is the verdict could go in City's favour and then all this discussion becomes moot. So it's, you know, it's it's one of those very much wait and see what happens on on Monday, I suppose. Um, final point for the, the last two games, because uh, the defence has come in for criticism this season as well, Kieran. Uh, Zinchenko with an error at Southampton. Com- I, I think that was compounded by the fact that it was an absolutely quality finish. Yeah. I mean, you had that kid... Um- Che Adams was it? Um, you know, hungry for his first goal. They'd clearly, they they clearly sort of worked out that um, pressing high up the pitch and trying to win the ball off City at defence. They've probably targeted Zinchenko as well. Um, and 
yeah, I mean, they, they won the ball off him. He didn't do well enough with controlling it. And um, it was a beautiful finish, yeah. I mean, having somebody who's not a natural left-back playing at left-back, and then you've got... So he's out of position, and then you've got Ederson playing as a sweeper out of position. You know, it's it's sort of uh, it's a comedy of errors that the two of them together combined, you know, to score what was ultimately the winning goal in the end. I felt sorry for Zinchenko, really, you know, um, and it's an interesting one. I, you know, you see, you see, City, you know, drill these rondas and stuff where they're pass, 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 pass constantly in tight areas, but somebody's always in the middle trying to win that ball back, you know, so. It, it, he's controlled it as best as he can in the situation, but um, Southampton just were so hungry for it, and, and their strategy of pressing that far up really paid dividends. I was going to say, Jack, as much as he's not a left-back, he is playing there, so has to be judged as one. Yeah, he's been a left-back for the last three years, so he is a left-back, isn't he? Um, I mean, what made me laugh on Sunday was the criticism that Edison had for being so far out of his goal, and then the, cri- the criticism for... What's oh? I think it was Danny Murphy on commentary was like, oh, what's what's in check? What's a left back doing in midfield, like losing the ball there? <laughs> and what's Edison doing so far out of his goals? Like, have you not watched anything of City <laughs> yeah. over the last four years? Like, have you just not bothered like watching them at all? It's how they play, and uh, it's high risk, but when it works, it, it is high up. risk. Yeah, yeah. I mean, kind of. I mean, Zinchenko's played as a central midfielder for under Pep, hasn't it, a couple of times? So like should be adept at keeping the ball in, in those sort of areas. Um, I don't know. Zinchenko's a, a, a backup, isn't he? But the, the unfortunate thing for City at the moment is that he's only a semi-backup because it's all right having him there when Mendy's fit. But, you know, when's Mendy ever fully fit? Um, <laughs> he's, just missed, he's just missed the last two games and no one's batting an eye, have they? Because that's just normal. Yeah. But the... the Premier left backs missed the last two matches, and no one's no one's really said anything. How about uh, John Stones, Kieran? Uh, spotlight was on him for his return. What did you think? Yes, I I thought he did all right, but at the same time, uh, that has to be kind of counteracted in the fact that Liverpool, uh, Newcastle didn't really show up, did they? They didn't really try to play. Um, it was it was really really nice to see him back in the lineup. I really like him, and um. It, it was nice for him and Otamendi to be together and, and to keep a clean sheet. Uh, he had that one little tussle with um, with Richie that where Richie made a meal of it and then it led to a free kick, but it was all dealt with quite comfortably. Yeah, I thought he was commanding enough and it was nice to see him back playing the full 90. What's uh, what's his future looking like, do you think, Jack? Is he, has Pep been talking too much about it? He got asked about it and he was, he was very honest and said, we'll talk about it in the summer and, you know, the player's wish is not always my wish or the club's wish, and we've got kind of got to come to a come to an agreement on what on what we do. Um, Stones, uh, for his part, wants to make a go of it. Doesn't want to leave. Really wants to prove himself to the manager. Um, but he's really struggled with you know niggling injuries. He's it's, it's difficult for him. He he kind of starts getting into some sort of a rhythm, and this has happened like. I don't know, four it's or five times over. Countless yeah, times now, yeah. Yeah, he gets himself into some sort of form, which does You know, he's not the sort of player that'll come into the team and perform straight away. He's a bit like Aguero in that sense, where he needs like a little bit of time to readjust and acclimatize. Um, but his body has just not allowed him to do that. Um, and unfortunately, no one waits for you at City. Do they? they just kind of someone else will come in and. 
so he's been a little bit of a victim of that. His form hasn't been good enough. Like, you know, he would hold his hands up and, and say that. Um, it's just a shame because they were, people around the club and the, and the manager have, um, were saying two years ago that, you know, this guy could be like the real deal on a, on a world level and he, he played so well in the 100-point season. Yeah, and and he's not he's not kicked on since the hundred point season, um, which is which is a real shame. And then it, it, he's found it he's found consistency difficult. He's had things going on in his life that haven't haven't helped, and it's uh, it is a real shame. And then you know over the last few weeks, he's seen the emergence of Eric Garcia. I was going to not I, helped. Well, I was going to ask about Eric Garcia because uh, there's been strong rumours linking him to Barcelona. Uh, what do you make of them? Uh, Barcelona have have wanted to do want to bring him back at some point. Um, they, they they like him, and he's he's represented by Carlos Puyol. So obviously, there's a there's a bit, a bit a of a link. link. Yeah, there's a link <laughs> there. Um, but again, this is another one that might be replayed over and over. But I was of the mind when I spoke to a couple of people last week that Garcia was actually quite happy where he was. Um for now at least, uh, and he's enjoying the opportunities that have been uh, given to him. And certainly while Guardiola's manager at City, I, I, I would expect him to stay. Um, whether that changes over the next month or so, I don't know. But it, it does see, it sounded relatively positive. There's worries about his, his height and there's worries about his pace. Um, but yeah, no, it would be lovely to see him giving, giving a shot. It's great to see young players kind of stepping up. And um yeah, I, I quite like what I've seen of him so far. He never makes a mistake. He never makes mistakes. Um, the only time where you like wincing a little bit was that back pass at Southampton on Sunday. Yeah. Um, but he's just like, he's flawless. It's just his reading of the game and his like tactical awareness and he's so good. Um, and, he may, and he makes up for his lack of height and his lack of pace by just his intelligence and his yeah. posi- I mean his positioning for a 19 year old is just incredible it's do you think he has it physically Jack yeah well he said I, I would you think he's still got growing to do I mean you look at someone like uh look at someone like Foden who's filled out over the last year and it, it Foden's a what is he like nine months older than Garcia I think it's not by much um so he's still got a bit bit of growing to do um and it's uh, when he plays more often and more regularly, that confidence will come as well, which kind of you, you walk a little bit taller anyway, don't you? Um, it's, I think his organisation's really, really good. I think his debut was at his debut Leicester away in the Carabao Cup last season. Oh, it could um, have been. I, I, I was thinking Sheffield United, but that might be his first start, was it? He de- I, uh, first I think, Premier League start, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, yeah. I think Leicester away last season was his probably his first start for the club in the cup and he'd like it was like he'd been there for five years he was like bossing people about i think it was otamendi he was playing next to and he was like ordering otamendi around and you're thinking wow he's not <laughs> sure of confidence lad. he just knows what he's doing and like he, he seems safe as houses yeah they asked walker didn't they in an interview who he, who he saw kicking on to become a manager in the future and of all the sort of talented city he said eric garcia <laughs> He's doing, I think he's doing his coaching badges, isn't he? 
Spaß. Ja. <lacht> Are you ready for this gear change? This is one of the biggest gear changes we've ever done on this show. Uh, they sometimes say that a manager's touchline presence reflects on both the club and their team. And you can tell we're hitting that end of the season slump when we're scraping the barrel for ideas, when we're analysing the dress sense of those in the dugout. But discussing Pep Guardiola's wardrobe is something that's been on my radar for some time. So here's Sam Roscoe to talk us through the best and worst get-ups of City managers. <laughs> For Pep Guardiola, the one item of clothing that stands out is a grey knitted cardigan. Guardiola used to wear some pretty nice gear when he first started, some nice suits and stuff like that, but he seems to be getting more and more casual. You know, there was the infamous jardigan that he wore last season. In fact, he seems to be getting more and more casual every season to the point where next year it wouldn't surprise me if he turned up wearing his uh, dressing gown and slippers at one point. That City fan Dan Burke Guardiola's Jardigan ended up selling for more than six grand for charity at the end of last season. The Athletics' Sam Lee says the City boss's image is a mixed bag so far. Guardiola's wardrobe is actually really hard to pin down. You know, on one hand, I know I'm tempted to say he's the most stylish Premier League manager. It's, yeah, some of it's really good. Some of it's stylish. You know, the Stone Island stuff, he carries it off well. Obviously, there's a lot of the D-squared stuff, which I think you have to be a certain level of cool to get away with. And he does. But some of the some of the city branded gear he wears is dead weird. Sam thinks there have been some major flops for Guardiola in his four years at the club. Now that cardigan obviously wasn't city, but bad IMO. The hoodie he's wearing at the moment, the city one, not good either. Um, he wore a really nice city Puma coat back at the turn of the year. I looked again it myself. I didn't in the end. That goes to show the power, I suppose, of Guardiola wearing that stuff. Because I've heard that that hoodie, that purple one that he's wearing at the moment is selling out five times faster than all the rest of the stuff. This all kicked off because of how Guardiola dressed himself for the press conference ahead of the game with Newcastle. It was a t-shirt featuring Nina Simone reading Love Simone, Hate Fascism. I suppose that's kind of in keeping with him as a person and his fashion sense. You know, a few times he's worn that red hoodie for the lifeboats that rescue refugees off the Mediterranean coast. So it's, it's obviously got a political tinge to his wardrobe. But yeah, some of it's good, some of it's not so good. I'm probably a man after my own heart in that respect. Don't worry, Sam, there are no judgments here. Guardiola's look probably sits in between the two main styles. You've got tracksuit-wearing managers and those that dress smartly for the occasion. That can mean that when a manager who is normally suited and booted dresses down, the team's performance could suffer. That arguably happened when Wigan knocked Manuel Pellegrini's City out of the FA Cup at the Etihad in 2014. That Wigan game is super casual Pellegrini. City were atrocious. <laughs> well, he's been quiet for the last minute. He he's been that. While you and I yeah. were speaking, he was mulling that we're over. We're doing serious and you know what? He was thinking to himself, should I say it or should I not? And he went with, I, I went should. with it. I went with it. <laughs> what looks best on the touchline? Dan Burke wants managers to be smart. I've always preferred managers to wear a suit. Um, I'm not really sure why. I think it just looks a bit cooler. Um, you know, you, some managers can get away with, with wearing a tracksuit. Um, but, you know, if you're not careful... You end up looking like Tony Pulis and wearing the club shop. I think the best turned out manager we've ever had is Roberto Mancini, who, you know, some of those coats that he used to wear probably cost more than I own in a year. That's a sentiment that City fan Richard Burns agrees with. Mancini was a, a fantastically stylish man. The long hair when he came in, the scarf, the sort of long Italian coats. I assume they were Italian coats that got him through the harsh sort of Manchester winters. 
He was a, a stylish, stylish man. He knew how to wear a suit. He was sharp, wasn't he? That was the thing with Mancini. He was always, always sharp and looked immaculate. And that was a great, great image for the manager to hold at the time. Yeah, he always looked the absolute business. And Richard thinks that the scarf immediately set the tone. I think Mancini's scarf is quite an odd phenomenon, really. Just by wearing a blue and white scarf, he created an image for himself as this sort of really likeable guy and it wasn't just city fans that latched onto that it became a thing didn't it like commentators used to talk about it and it'd come up in press conferences and it was just a man wearing a scarf with the position that city were in when mancini arrived at eastland richard thinks mancini's image turned out to be just as important as his managerial ability city were not quite sure where they were or what they were you know we were this rich club but we hadn't we made these big signings but we hadn't quite kicked on as we'd have wanted to, there were no trophies yet. Mancini walks in and straight away something as simple as wearing a scarf in the club colours. That ingratiated him with the fans because like every football fan has worn a scarf in the club colours, haven't they? There was no doubt that one simple gesture won him a lot of support in the stands. However, that isn't always the case. If you're going to have a touchline look, you've got to make it a good one. Here's Dan Burke again. remember thinking Alan Ball's trademark flat cap looked pretty ridiculous at the time, to be honest. Um, it didn't go very well with that Umbro track jacket he used to wear. And uh, he looked more like he was walking his whip in the Yorkshire Dales than managing the Premier League football team. So I can't imagine the uh, the players at the time being, being too uh, impressed with that and it commanding too much respect. Alan Ball isn't a manager that City fans remember fondly. If ever there was a touchline look that summed up how the team was playing, it was probably that one. To be fair to him, I don't know if, if it would be considered a gimmick as such. It was something that he wore throughout his entire managerial career. And apart from his time at City, I think he was reasonably successful wherever he coached uh, Alan Ball. So perhaps it was seen as a bit of a good luck charm. And um, when he died, I remember at his funeral when they took the coffin into the church, they had the flat cap resting on top of it, which I think was a nice touch. Ball wasn't the only City manager with an iconic choice of headwear. Step forward, Malcolm Allison. Though, as football historian Gary James explained, that was more his style at Crystal Palace, the main road. It became like a, a bit of a lucky charm, and he, he used to sit, usually in the director's box at Sellers Park, with his fedora on. Um, <laughs> nobody behind him could see, obviously. Um, and it became the visual symbol of that, and it fitted. This is when he really became sort of big mal, this sort of caricature of the, the, the sort of football manager, if you like. Gary explains Alisson was always a fashion icon, though, even during his first spell at City as Joe Mercer's assistant. When he arrived at City, you know, you talk about the 60s, swinging 60s, and he was very smart. You know, his suits would always be um, made at Savile Row or the best tailors in the country, really. And and City City's manager was Joe Mercer, who... You know, he used to say to him, what's wrong with going to Burton's, you know, <laughs> just just get get a normal suit like the rest of us. It drew comparisons with one famous film star. The James Bond film, Honor Majesty's Secret Service with, with George Lazenbeck, which was, I can't remember the year it was out, but, you know, it was, that was sort of popular. And people used to say that Malcolm Allison sort of looked like George Lazenbeck, the actor. And, and so it was like they used to talk of him as if he was this sort of James Bond, suave, sophisticated figure. When he came back as manager in the late 1970s, Allison had changed his look somewhat. The fedora hat didn't make an appearance, but that didn't stop him experimenting with his wardrobe. He tended to wear sort of bigger, wider suits, 
but also a, a giant gold chain around his neck. I suppose you'd talk about medallion man or something like that, but he used to wear it over his shirt, um, usually. Um, so he was still stylish for that type of football manager, but by that time you'd also got Rod Atkinson doing similar um, and people like Terry Venables were starting to appear in a similar sort of way, if you like. So Guardiola isn't the first City manager to have had questionable choices in the dugout, and he's certainly not going to be the last. But whoever replaces him will probably have to go some way to top Roberto Mancini as the most suave man on the City touchline. Hello, my name is Gerard Beacons, former player of Manchester City, and you're listening to the Blue Moon Podcast. This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Blue Moon Podcast. Sam Roscoe uh, there. Now, uh, we asked the question on Twitter and uh, and got a few responses back. So uh, Rich has been in touch to say, uh, John Bond, always dressed smart in a tailored suit, plus he could rock a sheepskin coat. You knew he was the boss. Uh, Curtis, I'm not sure how ironic this is, uh, says, Stuart Pearce, track is tucked into the socks, and then there was a love heart's eyes uh, emoji <laughs> with that. Um <laughs> Nick says, uh, someone who doesn't wear a cotigan. Uh, we called it a jardigan that Guardiola was wearing in the, in the feature there. Um, Adam says, uh, block anybody that doesn't say Mancini. Uh, while uh, John says, Big Mal managed to convince the world that he was ahead of his time. So, Kieran, where does, where does Guardiola stand when it comes to uh, City's recent managers and the, the touchline dress sense? Uh, surprisingly, not that highly. I mean, I remember watching the Champions League, you know, growing up on, on ITV and seeing this very handsome man in a really sharp suit. And then he went to uh, he went to Bayern Munich and he was wearing this V-neck merino wool jumper. <laughs> and then he, he comes to City and he's wearing he's wearing a hoodie you would leave at your girlfriend's house. Like, <laughs> I don't uh, I, I I don't mean to come across as your dad here, like, but you know, if you were thinking, does the uh, sartorial kind of choices reflect the um the love and care you're going to give your job <laughs> he never seems that arse does he like um the codigan was a the codigan was a joke last year that was awful it was horrific that was i think it i think that was his wife's i think she oh. made that oh god so, oh sorry mrs guardiola uh, <laughs> it, was, it was lovely <laughs> i'm sure there's a bit of chat last year I th- i'm sure he didn't wash that last year Oh. I, I don't think he. He was. Uh, I might be wrong, but I'm sure someone said at some point that he hadn't washed it. It was. It didn't look washed. Superstition type thing. All oh, right. I mean, at the moment, he looks like he's been kitted out back club shop, doesn't he? He's like, yeah. uh, is that high end Tony Pulis? I'll just stick this on with <laughs> um, What about Mancini though, um, Kieran? He, he is surely the greatest. Yeah, I, I think Adam was right there when he said block anybody who doesn't say it. Um, he was just he was just the picture of of cool, of arrogance, of of smartness. He looked great. Uh, so the suits were always fine and perfect, but it was the scarf, wasn't it, that just set it off? Um, I just remember when he joined the club wearing that scarf, and just he'll always for me be the uh, be the man who got it, and. Um, he he took it all very seriously, and it was reflected in the it was reflected in his um in his dress sense. Really, I thought. 
Definitely. Now, um, I'm not going to inflict any more fashion talk on you, so uh, don't worry about that. We're going to move on to look ahead at uh, games against Brighton and Bournemouth. The games are coming thick and fast, Jack. Um, How is Guardiola keeping the players fresh ahead of basically the FA Cup and the Champions League? Because the Premier League just doesn't matter anymore. Uh, Well, just same as he always does, isn't it? He's rotating the team every week. Um, A massive changes within within reason. I mean, I'm, I'm actually, to be honest, I'm more interested in these ideas for next year. Because um, obviously there's, there's a lot of ifs and buts about when their season is going to finish. Uh, I don't know when the Champions League final is. Is that the 23rd? 23rd, I think 23rd of August, yeah. So then, like, the planning to start the next Premier League season on September the 12th. What? Um, so that's really isn't a lot of time. This could mean then, that I've done a podcast every week for about 18 months by the end of next season. <laughs> and what are you doing to uh, to make sure you don't burn out? Um, <laughs> what am I doing? Uh, I'm not a lot, really. I've, I've, I'm so close to hitting the wall. We've just done a feature on fashion sense, mate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But they, if they like, if they start the season on September the 12th, which is what's looking likely, and they you know, complete that season, they're straight into the Euros. And then you would expect the season after that to uh, to start in August, and then there's a, there's a Winter World Cup. Oh, um, a year after that, isn't there? Is God, that, it is just right? does, yeah, it just yeah. doesn't stop, does it? It's like... no. So actually, kind of what he's doing. I mean, I've not found out what he's doing at the moment. I'm kind of on my list of things to find out. But what he's doing now will have more of a will be more geared up towards September, I think. Kieran, is it is it a weird case of treating these next games like a pre-season then in that case? Uh, yeah, in a roundabout way, every single game has felt like a bit pre-season since Project Restarters kicked off. Um, somebody asked Pep about naming the six changes, you know, between the previous game. And he was just like, you know, the games are coming thick and fast. We're kind of trying to keep everybody fresh. Um, so given Stones and Otamendi, I mean, lots of people were laughing at the kind of uh, defensive lineup on Wednesday night. But, you know, it, it was all kind of keeping it fresh as best as you can. But that's because it is it does feel like preseason and none of it really seems to matter. Of course, it doesn't matter in the Premier League. It's about momentum for the Cups. And it's about, um, yeah, as you touched upon, kind of just keeping faces fresh and giving everybody as much game time as we can because the games are coming so fast. Kieran, do you, are, are these games important to win on the basis of City have got to do everything they can to stop Liverpool taking that biggest Premier League title winning margin? Um, that would be a nice kind of thing. and You know, it would... It, it fires me up a little bit and, you know, that's the kind of one sole hope that I have left in this Premier League season. Really, it looks as if we're pretty much definitely going to finish second. Um, the only thing that I care about is Liverpool not beating the record and United not finishing fourth. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, what what is the swing and what, what do Liverpool have to not do to get the 100 points? Well, Liverpool can still get 104 so uh, there's uh, there's four games left as well. So they're, they're in a position that they're probably going to break that 100 points. I'm not too bothered about that, though, because City were the first and always will be the first. So that's it. You know, it's, it doesn't matter now who does it after that. Um, in order for them to for City to get closer to them and to, to not lose that 19 point winning margin, uh, there needs to be a five point swing over those four games. Um a four-point swing would leave them joint record holders. So, so a five-point swing would actually stop Liverpool getting the hundred points as well. Okay. Well, it, 
I mean, who knows? Who knows the way the rest of the season is going to go? City are just, I think you said it earlier on, this is just, this week itself sums up City's season, doesn't it? Um, all those attempts against Southampton and still losing, and then a comfortable route over a team at home. I think we just have to do what we can, sort of the away form as well, really. Yeah, uh, Brighton away, um, Jack. It's it, it feels like a, a really nice ground, uh, Brighton for for City because it, it almost bookends Guardiola's what I'm going to call pure dominance of England. Do you know what I mean? Yes, it was just, it was the first game of the Centurion season, wasn't it? Yeah, and then the last yeah. game of last season. Yeah, they play. I, weirdly, I was at both of those games. They played <laughs> played three five two in that first one with Danilo on the left wing. A man who can't even stand on his left leg, <laughs> let alone pick it. and company in a back three. And I, I remember asked, asking company after the match about a back three, and he got quite like he got quite sheer to me about it. Um, and he's like, because it felt like something new, and like that's the way they were going to play moving forward. And obviously, they, they ditched it quite quite quick. So it's quite an interesting game that. Um, because they didn't play well at all, really. They, I think they won. They won it with two goals quite late on, um, and obviously last last year, will uh, everyone who was there will, will remember that. And I was sat quite <laughs> sat quite close to a Man United fan that day, um, and there was that swing, wasn't there? Liverpool score in their game, and Glenn Murray then scored the opener, yeah. and people were getting quite giddy for about. 25 seconds until the, <laughs> went up the other end scored. Um, but yeah, it was like, yeah, it's, it's one of those, you, you remember both of those games that, you know, it was red hot both, both times. Um, one of them, I got a lift with Jonathan Smith and he ended up reversing round and round about, which is a, <laughs> a story I've told on this podcast before. I've never heard that story before, but I, I, I want to hear more. What on earth yeah. was he doing? Um, he, missed his, he missed his turn. <laughs> And he's just like, his bottle completely went and he's like effectively just stopped on his roundabout. It was the first roundabout after we left the, the Amex as well. It's like, oh my God, this is going to be a long <laughs> journey home, this. <laughs> Have you been on any other away trips with him? Uh, not any that I want to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we had a winner on this week's charity bet. So well played to Paul Atherton, who bagged £120 for his correct score of 5-0 against Newcastle. That's taken our total for the Christie for the season up to £870. We're collecting money for the Cancer Hospital in Manchester with William Hill. They're giving each of us a £10 correct score single on City's games. Uh, so starting off with Brighton, um, uh, Kieran, what are you having? Uh, 2 0. That is 11 to 2 and 55 pounds if you're right. Jack, what are you having? Uh, 3 1. Uh, 3 1 is Very 9. Much dependent on which city turns up, obviously. But... Yeah. Uh, 3 1 is uh, is 9 to 1, so 90 pounds if you're right. And I'm having 2 1, so uh, that's 7 to 1 and uh, 70 pounds if I'm right. And that brings us on to the game with Bournemouth. Now, the odds for the Bournemouth game aren't out yet, so uh, you have to check on our Twitter feed for uh, for what they are. So uh, we'll just run through the scores. I'm having 5 0. Jack, what are you having? Uh, 4 0. 4 0. And uh, Kieran? 5-1. Remember, you've got to be 18 or over to gamble. Prices can change. Please gamble responsibly. And if you'd like more information about responsible gambling, have a look at begambleaware.org. Now, all this season, Rob Wilson has been going through how the podcast covered each of City's seasons in the 2010s. In the penultimate edition, we're heading back to one of the best campaigns that City fans have ever experienced, as Pep Guardiola rewrote the rulebook on how to win a title.
City began the 2017-18 season with a point to prove. After a disappointing first year for manager Pep Guardiola, several high-profile changes to the first team signalled their intent, with almost £200 million spent on summer signings. After City beat Brighton 2-0 on the opening day, Raheem Sterling emerged as the team's key man twice in a week. First, he rescued a point against Everton before stealing a win in the last minute at Bournemouth. In the aftermath of the goal, City's hero was controversially red-carded, and Richard Burns was unhappy with the decision. Football sports aren't misbehaving celebrating a goal. It happens. It's a natural reaction to a tense situation and that release of energy. So no, I, I absolutely don't think it should have been a booking. I don't think there was any bad behaviour on the, the part of the City fans or the player. That red card meant Sterling missed City's first big statement win of the season, a 5-0 victory over Liverpool. On the podcast, Jonathan Smith was impressed by the team's display. City completely controlled the game. Liverpool couldn't. We've seen it with other sides, you know, Brighton early first game of the season, Everton even when City were down to 10 men, is that City are controlling the ball and but also dominating where that where the ball is. Teams just can't get out of their own half. By the end of September, City were top of the table. With a dominant victory over reigning champions Chelsea, sealed by a fine strike by Kevin De Bruyne, things were looking ominous for the rest of the league. Paul Atherton explained why City had been so good. Any team, no matter how, how good, seems to sort of be flustered. I mean, City are flustered when that happens to them. But just we see it in the second half when defenders got the ball and they're chasing them and it's get the ball back so quickly. It is like the Barcelona back back in you know five six years ago. City's fortunes in the Champions League were looking rosy as well. They won their group, qualifying on match day four with an impressive 4-2 win over Napoli. That was also the night Sergio Aguero became the club's record goal scorer. Richard Burns explained what it meant. He's certainly the best striker we've ever had. You can probably, without wanting to exaggerate too much, you can probably say he's one of the best strikers it's ever been. Maybe. You, know, you talked about is he underrated? Maybe in time people will just come to realise how good he is once he's gone. I know City fans appreciate him, but maybe the wider footballing public will, when that hole is there and there isn't really anybody to fill it in quite the way that Aguero does, maybe everybody will understand. As November drew to a close, City faced Southampton at the Etihad on a winning streak that had already lasted three months. With almost the last kick of the game, Raheem Sterling scored a belter to make himself a hero yet again and send City eight points clear. It's Raheem Sterling! That wins titles! Isn't he averaging a goal just under or just over every 90 minutes or something like that? Something like that. Well, he's, yeah. he's on 13 in 19. Yeah. So, that, I mean, that itself, he's already had his best goal scoring season. Yeah. Yeah, and he literally had the width of a ball to put that last night, mm. and he put it he put it in the only place that he could put it in. A win at Old Trafford in the derby then sent City even further ahead before they broke the record for the most consecutive Premier League wins. That run would stop at 18 with a nil-nil draw at Crystal Palace on New Year's Eve. But while that was happening, City were successful on another front. Pep Guardiola earned his first trophy as City manager with a 3-0 win over Arsenal in the League Cup final. Have so uh, and he's got one. Surely it will be a win for Manchester City. They lead Arsenal by three goals to nil. In the league, City's first defeat of the season had come at Anfield, and that would be the venue of their demise in the Champions League too. Wigan ended City's hopes of the FA Cup with a shock win at the DW Stadium, and then a disaster of a week saw City lose 3-0 to Liverpool in Europe and let a 2-0 lead slip in the Manchester derby on the day that they could have won the title against their rivals. 
Jonathan Smith thought City didn't get the rub of the green in those three games. Mo Salah's first goal was very, very marginal. Similarly, the, the goal that was disallowed. There were two very, very poor decisions. I think the Ashley Young tackle on Aguero was... I just don't know how anyone's missed that. Well, I thought the worst of all was the Sane goal that was disallowed against Liverpool because that was a big moment and there's three officials within 10, 15 yards of that and between them they've got it badly wrong. After getting back on track with a win at Spurs, a shock win for West Bromwich Albion at Old Trafford crowned City champions and secured Guardiola's first English league title. Richard Burns was watching as the news came in. I'll be honest, I was expecting it to feel anticlimactic if we won that way. And it didn't obviously feel the same as if we'd won it against United. But I managed, I, I was surprised myself how loud I cheered the Rodriguez goal <laughs> and then how I felt waiting for the final whistle. And it was a great feeling. From there, City could have coasted to the end of the season, but they had their eyes on breaking records instead. When Gabriel Jesus scored a last-minute winner at Southampton on the final day, it meant City became the first team to earn 100 points in the top flight. They also had the most wins in a Premier League season, the most goals in a Premier League season, and the biggest title-winning margin. If City had started the season with a point to prove, they'd certainly made it. Records tumbled, and history was made. Hi there, this is Joe Royal speaking. You're listening to the Blue Moon Podcast, and carry on doing so. This is the Blue Moon Podcast. Rob Wilson there. Now it's time to finish with Ask the Panel. Send your questions in for the next show uh, at Blue Moon Podcast on Twitter, or you can email us as well. Just go to the website, bluemoonpodcast.com. Joe McDee on Twitter asks, how much has social media eroded your experience of being a football fan? I used to find it quite funny during and after games, but now I just find I'm more and more exhausted by supporting a football team and being online. Kieran, um, is this, can you relate to this? I can. That's a brilliant question. Um, I don't know if the, I don't know if it's eroded it, but it's definitely changed it. Um, it's a it's a funny one being being a season ticket holder and having so many friends and and people who I go to the game with and who I see, you know, every uh, every second Saturday, and then at the minute we're all at home and nobody's going to the games. So that sort of big, big presence of people who I know are all kind of tweeting at the same time. So I sort of like second screening during during a match. And, you know, people will pick up on little things and little memes will have emerged. And, you know, everybody's kind of making these jokes and, and silly comments and stuff. Plus I get to read Jack and all the journalists kind of take on things from being at the game. So I quite like it for that. But the tribalism and the alternative takes and the heaviness of it all particularly i I find with off-field issues absolutely sends me under it it does my head in like um there's always somebody like city will put up season ticket prices every year and then arguments will form because some people think that they should put up prices and actively seem to want to pay more to go to the football and you know that kind of thing you know blue on blue fighting is a bit of a, a bit of an annoyance and then fights and arguments with other players and this sort of beating your chestness that exists of people called superior superior sane or mortal mane and stuff it's just <laughs> it, it, it's it's a bit tragic at times social media but um it's definitely a new experience of watching the game and i don't i don't think i would you know 10 years ago watching it it's it's a much more different experience to, to now do you agree 
Well, I was going to say, Jack, you don't really engage on social media. You post your stories out and, and post like a, a few comments on the game. But other than that, I don't really see you tweeting. So I, it's, it's a very much a work thing for you and you don't engage with it. No, I, I, to be honest, mate, I absolutely despise it. Um, if I was 20 years older and had been in, in the industry um, before Twitter had come along... I think I would have been one of the ones that just railed against it and came in, came to it really late. I just I got to a point with it, and I I don't really get that much abuse, if I'm honest, because I don't really engage. Um, but I'm just, and maybe maybe this is me um, being too fearful of it. But I just I don't want the hassle. I just it's just an added an added problem. That you don't that you can avoid and you don't need. And I see, you know, I see some of my colleagues that become embroiled in 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 massive arguments on it. It's like, oh yeah. Life's too short. It's really too like, you know, if <laughs> Mortal Mane <wants> to <laughs> have a go at me or whatever, it's like, well, <laughs> occasionally occasionally I'll go back to people, but then I like the way I look at it and go, I think I don't think as a journalist and I completely understand people being uh, wary and mistrustful of the media for various, you know, varying reasons. But as a journalist, I don't think you can win on Twitter if you yeah. if, if you have an argument. I d- there is no way you can come out of it on top. And I don't want to waste hours of my day arguing with people online because it, you know, it affects you. It affects your mental health if you get in. I have had it in the past where, you know, I will have written something um, and you'll get 24 hours, 48 hours of solid abuse. And these are like, these, you know, it doesn't happen often to me, as I said before, for, for because of the way I kind of handle it uh, or the way I tweet. I just don't want it. I don't want to go to bed thinking about what people are saying about me online. It's... It's horrible. I just, yeah. I just don't. It's not a nice place, um, yeah. and it's good great. For journalism seems to have changed forever. Really, you know, you seem to have to have a Twitter presence or persona. But I mean, how much of these great stories that are broken, or you know, match reports that are done, or rumors that you guys will tweet out, and then you just have people attacking you? I, I even sense that you know what you were saying um, during this podcast, Jack. You know, the the fears over saying something and then it coming back to haunt you there seems to always be receipts on twitter now for somebody will remember a, a take that you come up with in 2014 yeah. and we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll dig it up and use it against you it, it doesn't seem to be a pleasant way of operating also the other thing that i always say to people when they say why well, you know and a few people have asked me this like why why don't you kind of tweet more and give opinions and all that sort of stuff do any of you actually care what i think about the game i don't think you do and you, you'd be quite right to to not care what I think. I'm paid to give you news. I'm not paid to tell you that Gabriel Jesus is 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 playing well on the left hand side, or you know, or John Stones hasn't, you know, he, he doesn't look like he's concentrating. Like you can see that for yourselves. You don't need me to tell you. Mm. Like the, what I can bring and what our industry can bring is like insights from behind the scenes that you wouldn't tweet. You put them in a you put them in a story. You put them in a piece. Yeah, um, and that—I mean—that's another. I could talk to you all day about this, but that's another problem: is that actually people don't read what's what you tweet. I did. Um, 
I did quite a lengthy feature on the uh, title win in uh, 2012 and how that was built on a quite a boozy trip to Los Angeles the summer before and spoke to quite a few people that were involved and all that sort of stuff. No one clicked on it. No one bothered. All they want is one like one little line with whoever saying, Pep Guardiola wants to sign Koulibaly this summer. Leave it at that. That's all I bothered about. Which dilutes the, the the job for me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I will say in terms of your social media presence, chat, you did absolutely cut me a new one uh, at the game yesterday. <laughs> I put the I put the dress sense question out there, and you were so busy this evening. I mean, that that honestly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. I mean, I, I'm not bad for like little occasional one liners, but I mean, yeah. You, got, right. you did me a kipper there. Um, you know what I mean, though? Do you think I'm yeah, being yeah. like... No, I don't, I don't at all. I, I completely get where you're coming from. It's... I don't know. It's just... But then the, the flip side is, if you don't have 50,000 followers, what does that mean for, you know, if I was if I was sacked by the mail tomorrow, it, uh, is another newspaper or another website going to turn around to me and say, well, you've only got 10,000 followers or whatever, whatever I've got? Mm. You're not a big enough presence. And that's that shouldn't be the job for well, me. Well, I said that shouldn't be the case, should it? That, it no. should be how good are you at reporting? That's it. But so yeah, it's the world we live in. Mm-hmm. Uh, final question for this week's show: Eleanor Charles asks on the emails, uh, "Is Micah Richards the city legend pundit that the club and the fans have been crying out for?" What do you reckon, Kieran? Yes, <laughs> he is an absolute breath of fresh air. I mean, I loved him. I loved him from the very moment he, he headed that one in against Villa. Like, and you know, I've adored him. I adored him as a player. I've adored him, you know, post-playing career. But now getting to see him twice a week on the BBC is or Sky is just absolute joy to behold. His big toothy grin and his laugh. <laughs> um, he, he's a gorgeous man. I really, really love him. And, you know, he wears his kind of, he wears his blue heart on his sleeve, doesn't he? And it's there for all to see that it's kind of biased. It seems to be that him and Lineker now have a running joke about it. Um, but all too often you had these, you know, old white geezers who used to play for Liverpool or United sort of dominating the, uh, dominating the studios. And now you have this just brilliant, young, infectious, um, wonderful ex-City player and you know we, we can't really complain about um about not seeing ex-Blues now especially one who's so who's so vocal funny and lovable this is it isn't it Jack I mean I know the club were were, were a, a, you know, desperate for a presence in a studio like that because I mean there's been nobody like you talk City Legends and nobody's going to tune in to match of the day if it's got Paul Dickoff and uh you know Sean Goater on it are they no, I mean the big the big issue was with uh, BT, wasn't it, and the Champions yeah. League, and uh, they, they didn't feel like they were being represented on that. And they did have you know did have Richard Dunn on it quite a lot. Um, Steve uh, Steve McManaman's obviously on it, but you know City not, fans have yeah not have really ex City is he? That's the thing. Yeah. Um, Trevor Sinclair's never really made the proper breakthrough, has he? Um, it's I mean it comes down. The bottom, I mean, the bottom line is, and maybe, maybe this is patronising, but they haven't had enough big names up until yeah. ten years ago that can accurately accurately reflect um, the club, uh, and that is beginning to change. Joe Hart wants to go into the media. Um, oh, Micah Richards is is, I mean, Matt, he's just such good value, Richards, isn't he? And yeah. absolute great fun. But the great thing about Richards is that 
he knows the modern game and he knows what players are like and what makes them tick and why they do certain things. So he actually bring, all right, it's fantastic that City have got a voice um, on the telly or on the radio, but he also actually brings an insight that some of the others don't and is proving to be of real value to whoever use him, particularly particularly Sky, actually. I think he's been great on Sky. Yeah, he stepped up King on Sky, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, there's more of him. I think on Sky, there's more of a debate about things, more more so than the Beeb, uh, particularly on the telly. Um, yeah, I think he's. I think he's been. He's been fab. Yeah, well, uh, that's it for uh, this week's Blue Moon podcast. Thank you very much for listening. If you've enjoyed the show, then please go and give it a rating and a review in all the usual places. If you'd like some more, then on this week's Patreon bonus show, we're discussing City in this season's Champions League and all the things that come with it to our expectations for the remainder of the competition and how the competition will look next month as well. There's more details on how you can listen to that on patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon podcast. Thanks to my guest this week, City fan Kieran Murray. Cheers, Blue. And the Daily Mail's Jack Gorn. Thank you very much. I'll be back next week to look ahead to that FA Cup semi-final against Arsenal, so see you then. That was the Blue Moon Podcast. Please support the show. Patreon.com forward slash Blue Moon Podcast.